0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Media Mates Podcast. My name is Ralph Tucker. Each week, I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next and everything else in between. My guest today is Natalie Peters from 2GB. Natalie has been working in Sydney media for over a decade as a newsreader with WSFM and 2GB. She chats about how working in the snow opened her eyes to the media world, learning her craft under the watchful eye of a Sydney radio icon, and hitchhiking her way to cover the Christchurch earthquake. Natalie is someone I've known for a long time, and I'm very proud of what she's achieved in her career to date, so I really hope you enjoy our chat. Natalie Peters, welcome to the Media Mates podcast.
1: Thanks, Ralphie. I'm a little nervous.
0: Now, we should set the scene. We're probably at (laughs) one of my favourite old haunts, having worked at 2GB a number of years ago, the Harlequin Hotel, or the Harlequin Inn at Piermont. It's lost none of its charm.
1: Well, I think the carpet might have been replaced since those days, but... Oh no, it's pretty smelly, but you know.
0: Now, you're, let me get this right 2GB breakfast newsreader for Alan Jones? Yes. Your deputy news director? Yes. You also host a show on Sunday night with Michael Packey? I do. A number of hats?
1: Yes, at the moment, yeah, very busy.
0: And comfortable with all of those?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a juggling act, but I mean, they all play into each other, I think. And, um, you know, there are so many people at 2GB that do work for a, different, a few different departments. You know, we've got Mark Levy, who's on air pretty much 24-7, but he's doing sport with the newsroom or, you know, hosting or calling football games. So everyone kind of does a little bit. And that's pretty cool to get those opportunities. Yeah.
0: And how long have you been there for now? It's
1: almost six years since I came over from WS. Wow. Yeah, six years in in October, so time flies.
0: And it's certainly gone quickly for you, you think?
1: Yeah, for sure. Gosh, it doesn't feel like that long ago that I was at WS every now and then. I still say we, as in talking about what we did in the WSFM newsroom. Um, So yeah, it doesn't feel like that long ago at all.
0: Let's go backwards and work it out and sort out a timeline for you. Was media something that was always something that you wanted to pursue or was it did you have a different career path pegged for yourself?
1: Well, I had many career paths pegged for myself, I guess. I kind of, through high school, saw all sorts of things that interested me. And and um, at one stage, I wanted to be a cop. Um, what else was there? You know, I, did, I wanted to be a ski bum, which I did for a few years early on. But yeah, once I got to year 12, I thought, right, um, I really liked the idea of the communications degree. I had a few friends that were... Signing up for it, so I put my name down for it and um, went to Sydney Uni, and that's kind of where I got into it. But I had been doing a bit of community radio, so I really did love radio. Um, I just thought that that communications degree would give me a few options in those areas, and yeah, so I went for it.
0: Where did you do the community radio?
1: To Triple R, actually, down wow. at Hyde on uh, or Gladesville, I guess it is, on Victoria Road, and they taught us how to panel. and I think Mum was my only caller, um, and she requested. Credence, I think, <laughs> Clearwater 5. I was like, I don't even know what that is, but sure. And, um, you know, we used carts and learnt how to, you know, cut tape and do all those old things. And um, Abe, who's actually one of our technicians at TUE now, he taught me how to panel back then. And um, yeah, it was just, it was part of a university show and it was just uh, good fun to get involved. and play tunes, rocking tunes.
0: Would have been a few interesting characters there at that time as well, I would have thought.
1: Yeah, it was great. And that was the funny thing, you know, you'd be helping or hosting on a show with someone a few decades older than you or, you know, other students and people that had been in community radio for years. And yeah, it was a great chance just to be around a radio station and um, yeah, see how it worked.
0: Tell me about the Sydney Uni course. What was that? like for someone that had their eyes pretty much firmly set on a, a career in radio?
1: Um, well, th- to be honest, there wasn't much radio involved. And um, it was a, you know, a general media degree, um, four-year degree where you do majors in other things. So I did a major in sociology. And you know I, first day when I signed up for uni, I had no idea how it worked. Um, I just went in and they said, you have to choose your subjects. So I was like, oh, psychology sounds cool and philosophy sounds good and sociology. So <laughs> I don't even know what that is. So I signed up for that. Um, which sounds really naive now, but I just, you know, uni wasn't, we didn't have a lot of people in my family that had been through uni recently and we didn't have great career advice, I guess, at school looking back on it now as to going into it. So um, yeah, I chose a wide range of subjects, which I think was a really good thing about the Sydney uni degree, Um, but there wasn't a lot of practical Experience so radio was just one component, one subject over four years, really. Um, but I really loved it because we got to do a little bit of everything. There's a lot of media relations. There was a lot of print writing. There was TV. There were you know documentary making. It was a little bit of everything, and then it also had the the other side of being able to do economics or sociology or whatever else you chose to do. So yeah, it was it was a good time and um, it was a good course. I think yeah.
0: It's funny that a whole lot of people that you speak to when you talk to them, if they go to university, they seem to go to CSU, whereas Sydney Uni doesn't really rank up there. Was there many people within your course that went on to greater things in, in media?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, Gemma Jones, who's now, I think, editor at the telly, she, was, um, she and I used to do all our assignments together because we were both pretty much working full-time at the same time as uni. So we'd, she was a cadet at the telly um, doing overnights and then coming to uni Um, during the day. It certainly doesn't have the reputation of Bathurst when it comes to journalism and a lot of people have gone off into government, um, PR, those kind of media relations roles. But I think it came down to where you did your internship and we had a six-month internship program and um, um, it came down to going out and getting your own experience in media if you wanted to be a journo. It wasn't like we had a radio station at the school, for example, like Bathurst or even UTS has two SER at the moment. So you did have to go and get a bit more experience. Um, you know, I joke about Sydney Uni students being great at writing an essay about what's wrong in the media and not necessarily being able to get in and fix it themselves, but, you know, that has changed a lot. I did it, I was like the second year to go through showing my age, so it's changed a lot since then. And I think um, no matter which degree you do, you have to go out there and get your own practical experience.
0: Now, where did you do your work experience or your internship?
1: I actually did it in the States. Um, By that stage, I was doing a lot of skiing. So I was living in Jindabyne in the winter and driving up to uni um, three or four days a week and staying up in Sydney and then driving back down to work in ski resort for the weekend and um, then going overseas for my uni break. So from November through March, I'd work in the States. And while I was over there, I worked for a PR ad agency that had a few big clients like um, Utah Travel, the, the big tourism body over there, and Deer Valley, which was the resort I was working at. So I actually didn't do it in media as such. I was working in the States and, and actually was, by that stage, had kind of gone off the radio idea and thought that it wouldn't be possible and being a journalist, journalist would be too hard and I'd never be good enough to do that. So I went on the PR side of things and was really enjoying that route. And um, so I did mine over there.
0: And what sort of led you back to pursuing that career in radio like you said you seem to be hell-bent on you know enjoying the the life as the ski bunny and doing all those kind of things yeah. which you know um there was the opportunities there down at the ski fields with media units and so forth and doing all that kind of thing which maybe would have opened the door for you well perhaps.
1: that's that's actually how it, that's how it happened so i um once I was, I did a, a little bit of work experience uh, for the media department at Parish Blue, as it was called then, and um, we'd get up at four in the morning and go up there and just help them out, holding the flecky and, you know, I don't know, trudging through the snow and doing hair and makeup and things like that, and um, that was a really great time to learn from those guys down there about reporting, like it was, I mean, it's slightly PR-style reporting, but it's still the reporting skills, and it was um, after doing... Um, a full time season at Perisher, I called TUE and I'd been doing their snow reports and said, Oh, do you mind giving me a go on the phones or whatever you do? Can I come in? And, um, so that's how I ended up, um, up at TUE in Sydney. But I also did a little bit down at Snow FM and I remember walking into the studio and thinking, I've got a degree in communications. And I don't know what any of these buttons do. And um so pretty much that day I applied to go to afters and to do radio as a postgrad one year full-time course. Because I just thought, right, I've been skiing for six years. I did a lot of seasons back to back and had studied communications and had kind of put the radio thing to the side and then decided, you know what, I'm gonna give it a go. And um so it was via Perisher that I got to two UE.
0: It's amazing how many people go through university courses or college courses or whatever, and then get to the end of it and realize they've put a whole lot of time and effort into learning about these things. But the practical experience doesn't marry up in any way, shape or form, which I don't know whether it reflects badly on the university courses or it's the fact that it's nice to get a nice background in all of that kind of thing. But in reality, unless you live it, you would never understand it.
1: Oh yeah, you know I think if I hadn't gone to afters for the year, I could never have walked in um, to get a job in a radio station. I don't think. I mean, I mean, a lot of people did. I don't want to diss the Sydney Uni course too much, but you're right; it wasn't practical. Like I think the radio component of reading news was sitting at a desk in a classroom with a with, like with a microphone in front of you that wasn't plugged into anything, no headphones, and that was learning to read the news. And we had great lecturers, and and you know. A lot of a lot of practice and a lot of theory, but in the end not actually doing it. But that's what the work placement component of the course was for. And, you know, a lot of people just went out and got their own jobs and did work in the holidays, and I think they're the ones that have gone through and landed in media.
0: Let's go back again to that media unit down there at, at the Perisher and, and places like that. I mean, like you said, it gave you a great snapshot of what it could have been like, and those departments back in the day were actually quite big. They're not as big now because I guess the interest level in the um, the companies providing you know snow reports and different packages for like Sports Tonight and different things like that, they don't seem to exist as much as they do now. But those guys really had a great understanding of, okay, we need to do X amount of packages per day. We need to deliver them for all of these radio stations. To sort of see that in operation must have been a real eye-opener for you.
1: Yeah, it was amazing. You know, they do six TV reports, you know, swapping jackets, swapping beanies, swapping mic flags and then, you know, going from Fox Sports to Fuel TV to, oh, hang on, it's live for today's show and then, oh, heck, we forgot about Sky News. And, and you know, it was amazing how many that could be done in the morning and the same with radio. We'd be doing, you know, sometimes 20 or 30 radio reports in a morning to all around the country, all around the state the state especially, in New South Wales, but um, I think and that gave me an understanding of how where all the radio stations were, to be honest. That was a really good grounding there. Um, but it was, yeah, it was amazing how they could fit it all in and that actually probably gave me an insight into what radio is like now in that, you know, you're not working on one story, you're doing quite a few different things at once.
0: To you afters, afters, tell me about those experiences. First of all, afters, what was that like? You said you wanted to get a more sort of direct and uh, better understanding of Radio specifically, what was that course like?
1: It was fantastic. I remember being in shock when I got in and thinking, oh no, what have I done? I'm going back to school for another year. And then from day one, it was just go, 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 hands on, full time, you know, sometimes 12 hours a day, most weekends as well. And you were doing everything from hosting music shows, not playing credits this time around, um, to, you know, working out advertising budgets and promotions and um, doing interviews and it was one of those courses that covered every angle of the radio station which was really good and that's you know that comes in handy just having that knowledge of what the salespeople are doing down the other end of the building and things like that but that's where I realised I really want to do news and um, that's where I met Glenn Daniel and Corinne McKay actually who I ended up working for at WS and I just I just loved it. We had Jason Morrison and all sorts of amazing... Um, oh, Paul Murray was there, another lecturer. We just had contact with some really great former after students, some of them, but otherwise just people who are working in the industry. And it just made me realise, yep, I definitely want to do news. There's no doubt that's the the area of radio that, I'm, that I want to be in.
0: Was that when it was a um, more selective course because... Back in the day, and I'm going back a long time now, like 20-odd years, it used to be a selection of about eight or ten people that used to get in the course for the year, and that was it.
1: Yeah, that that's exactly right. So you had to go, you had to submit a tape and write all these essays and whatever else, and then have a few interviews, and then, yep, it was just, I think there were maybe 12 of us from memory, and there was a side course that was more part-time, and it was at the time looking at um, ABC, SBS style broadcasting as opposed to commercial radio, which had a bit more of a focus on the music FM event. Um, and there were a couple of us that were interested in talk and news. But, yeah, you're in it for the year and it was, it was full on. It was out at Macquarie Uni at the time and uh, it has since moved to Fox Studios at Moore Park and it's a great facility. But, yeah, it's intensive, similar to, I guess, Maclay, if it were to be just focused on radio.
0: You mentioned there the 2UE experience when you went in there and you thought, oh God, I need to do something there. What was it about that place there that you thought, okay, I really need to get a better understanding of what's going on?
1: Well, I think it was more Snow FM walking into a, a radio station, you know, a commercial brand new radio station at Jindabyne thinking, gosh, this is a bit different to 2 R," And then at 2UE, you know, seeing I was producing and uh, as a casual at this stage, I was still I think finishing my final year at, um, at uni and I was just doing any shift I could get and answering the phones and then moved on into producing. And, um, I think it was just watching the newsroom on the other side of the glass and just thinking that's where I want to be. And yeah, I need to need to work out how to use all this equipment and, and how to do this a little bit better. And I guess having been through years of uni, I thought, Further study was probably the best way to do it, you know, rather than working my way through, which I did at the same time. But at the, at the time, it just seemed like the right thing to do was to go back and learn how to do it.
0: So you met Glenn and Corinne, and they sort of opened the door for you to get to, to WS. How did that all eventuate? Obviously, you finished your yeah. Your so um,
1: I was working at TUE over... Um, after the ski season and over the summer doing, you know, producing on breakfast and um, producing for Clive Robertson, which was great fun, and um, some fill-in shifts around the place. And then when I got into afters, I, I left to because it was a full-time course. And then um, I met... Glenn and Corinne during the course at Afters, and then towards the end of the course um, Corinne called and offered me a position at WS and um, I originally told her that I had to think about it which makes me laugh now Uh, (laughs) but I just thought I had to go regional you know I just thought no I can't take a job in Sydney I've got to go back to Cooma or I've got to go somewhere else now Um, because Afters and the degree at Sydney Uni they really drummed it into us that you're not going to get a job in Sydney radio it's just not the way it works. And, um, yeah, since then, Corinne and I are very close friends and and she laughs all the time thinking, you know, I wanted to slap you when you said you were going to think
0: about it. Take me through that conversation.
1: (laughs) Well, I was sitting in the car park at Afters and I remember getting the phone call and, and, like, my heart was racing because I'd, I'd, you know, done a little bit of work experience for them and never thought that would happen. But I was really – I think I was just scared of – not being good enough at the job, like of actually saying yes to it and then completely falling apart. So I thought, no, I'll go somewhere a bit smaller and, you know, try regional. But, of course, you know, after I thought about it for 24 hours, I slapped myself and said yes.
0: That's where our paths first crossed when you were working weekends with Mm. Cassandra Wood doing Sydney Brisbane out of the WSFM newsroom. I remember having a conversation with Leanne Lincoln who was working there also at the time. And I said to her, I said, gee, these girls on the weekend are good. And she said, yeah, yeah, they'll be good. And I said, oh, Cass seems to be, like, really confident. And she said, yeah, yeah, she is and she'll be good, but Nat will be the one that will be be really good as well. And I went, yeah, I believe you. And then it was just like, That's I think so for you good. it was more so about, like you said before, the self-belief kind of thing, backing yourself and, and wanting to make it work. Whereas, like, you and Cass were both really hard, workers and you knew what to chase and it was a really good part of your development phase to have Corinne and Glenn like right by your side to give you the feedback that you needed.
1: It was amazing working there and you know with you and with Cass and we had such a good team with Renee. um, It was just a really amazing team and I learned so much from Leanne on the road. I remember I still think about my very first job, it was with Leanne and I was shadowing her and we drove through the cross city tunnel and she asked me what the speed limit was. I was like, Oh God, I've got no idea. And then I, th- and then I thought, Oh my God, what if I'm in trouble for Leanne Lincoln speeding? I was really <laughs> nervous about it, but we went to, um, we went to Concord Hospital and, um, yeah, I just remember watching her file and, you know, I had no idea. I couldn't remember what I was meant to be filing first. And I learned so much from her and from Cass and of course, Glenn and Corinne it was a really great time. I remember actually, I was, I mean, it wasn't just a lack of confidence. I was pretty crap. Like I remember the first bulletin and I was so out of breath. I was so nervous that I couldn't get through anything. And poor Renee Smith was standing there. We had to record it by, it wasn't even live. It was recorded. We had to get it in by a certain amount of time. And I'd turn around and go, can we do, can we just take the one I did before? Because this, this one's not working either. And she was looking at me Thinking, no, you've got to read the whole bulletin. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was just so nervous, and I remember, um, gosh, I needed a lot of hand-holding early on. But it, they were—that was the place to to get that. You know, we had so much feedback, and we had so much um, knowledge around us to, to soak up.
0: Was it a case of just doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it again that allowed you to get over those nerves and feel more confident in your delivery?
1: Oh, it felt good after I'd done one like you know once I got one through yeah definitely I think um I, and it was also getting getting air checked you know Glenn Daniel would sit down with us and go through the bully and listen back and you know I, I don't know he's just the best air checker you could ever have really and he spent a lot of time with us but yeah it's just it's just practice but also learning what to do like uh, you know I I hadn't been in a newsroom, that was my first newsroom job. So once we were were shown, yeah, you just practice and practice and Cass was a huge support for me. Um, She was so great at writing sport and um, we, we had a really good little team going on weekends there and I think I learned a lot from Cass as well.
0: Like you say, I mean, I tell anyone that works in radio that they haven't really experienced a radio newsroom unless they've worked with Glenn Daniel because without doubt the best in terms of, as you said, air-checking other staff, but also just the fact that he'd back his staff. He's also just so professional in every aspect of getting the news together. So that means him turning up at work at ridiculous hours, like hours before anyone would contemplate getting out of bed, going through every paper with a fine tooth comb. Just, I think I would say that to anyone, and I still say that to anyone, to just... Work a day with Glenn Daniel, and you'll learn more than any courses that you could ever have written in the history of radio.
1: 100%. And I feel really lucky to have worked under him for quite a few years. There, I mean, it starts with his immaculate desk. Like every, he's got these piles of releases. You know, they're, they're in an order. Everything has its place. And it goes from there, you know, he's organized and structured in what he does. His, his hours are planned out. His bulletins are planned out. And I think that was really important to learn early on. And, you know, Corinne as his deputy was backing that up. And, well, she was Sydney news director rather than group news director, but, um, they were, they were amazing to work for. And I'm still really close with both of them. And, um, I feel really lucky to have worked for Glenn. It's a brilliant news director.
0: So do you think, working in that newsroom where you had to be across not only Sydney issues but Brisbane issues because we're all sort of based there do you think that helped you become a little bit more sort of well-rounded just in that because there's there's a lot of national stories but then it sort of forced you to be in touch with what's happening in a, in another state
1: yeah well I read Brecky for ninety seven three for quite a while and then then at nine a.m I'd switch over and do breakfast i mean sorry mornings for ws and mix so you had to all of us had to be across both cities both days i think what it really taught me is that you don't actually scary as it sounds you don't need to be in a city to do the news for it anymore like this is the way it's scarily this is kind of where it's going is i can sit at north ride and be in touch with police media up there and all the all the different services i can be rolling on state parliament on the computer watching it i've you know had a a couple of webcams so that i knew what the weather was doing in the city and bayside and i could be in brisbane essentially whether i was sitting in an office in north sydney or up in queensland i i'd like to think we were providing the same news service at breakfast and yeah that did i guess um set i guess set a framework or, or you know just teach you how to work across different cities which you have to do it's just the way it is now yeah
0: and when did you feel as though you were comfortable? You thought, because uh, like you said, it takes yeah. some people longer than others and then one day you go through a day and you just think, yep, I've done that and there's been no hesitation, there's been no <laughs> cock-ups, there's been, I feel comfortable and I feel I'm a newsreader now.
1: Gosh, that's a really tricky question. Um, I don't know if I've ever really felt really comfortable with it. Really? Isn't, I mean, oh, the cock-ups are still happening. Um, <laughs> uh, it's far from I think I said, course, really. I said Malcolm Shorten yesterday morning. <laughs> um, so that is still happening. I think, I think I've always – I remember the first day I read WS at 10 a.m. and felt really nervous. And, um, and then, yeah, you get used to it. The nerves die down. I was so nervous about moving to 2GB when I went from WS to here. and And, um, and then, you know, each new role – I get nervous about it and, you know, just worried about...
0: Why is doing... that, do I don't know.
1: I, I, um, I guess I care. And, and not nervous to the point where I can't breathe and I'm shaking, although I've had that before. But um, I think I just, I just care and I just want to do a good job, I guess. Um, I am comfortable reading the news. You know, I don't think... I'm not thinking about actually reading the news while I'm reading. I'm thinking about the story. And that's something Glenn always taught us, that... When you get in there, take a big breath and no matter what's been going on out there, no matter how mad it's been for the past 25 minutes getting the bulletin together, take a breath and you've got to be in that moment. And so I think that while I'm, you know, still feel a bit nervous about doing it, while I'm actually doing it, I'm not thinking about the nerves, if that makes sense. It's more, um, it's more on the, on the way in and, and the idea of, you know, taking a new job or accepting a new role that it comes with the nerves, but actually doing it at the top of the hour, you're, you're in the moment. As zen as that
0: sounds. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I guess people would think that if they're listening to the radio station, and I've got mates that still ask me, so what do you do between the bulletins? And, like, that's my most hated question of all time because essentially WS was different to 2GB. 2GB, you've got more resources and things like that, like in terms of people on the road that can file for you. Mm. WS, for the most part, It's just you a lot of the time or you and one other. And if you've got three stories that break at once, the time that you have to present it never changes. You can't ask for more time to complete an assignment. Like the hourly deadline is the hourly deadline regardless of what's happening in the outside world. So was that hard to adjust to initially just trying to – get all of those pieces to the puzzle and put them all together and present them in a, a fashion that people would listen to on the radio.
1: Yeah, editing is, um, is one of the tricky things. And as you said, there's the, the clock's ticking. It's not like you've got time, like, for example, at uni or when you're practising to to craft it and, you know, spend hours thinking about it. It's, you're on a deadline. Um, again, the organisation that Glenn and Corinne, used in their own editing, I think really helped all of us at WS. But, you know, we we worked bulletins ahead there because you really were short-staffed. And if one story came up, you'd be screwed. So you had to have a lot in the can for the next half hour and the hour after that. Yeah, I think um, nowadays, I mean, it still happens at TGB. I just had to run out now when, you know, there's the Greyhound racing industry has just been scrapped. We've got credit ratings standing and pause, going nuts, uh, you know, everything was just happening and there's one person sitting in there. You know, that, that's, that still happens at 2GB, yeah. ue right now. And so that's something that I think, yes, it happened in FM, but it still happens in AM and it's just something you have to cope with, I guess, makes you fast.
0: You talked about going out in the, on the road there with Leanne Lincoln in the early days at, at WS. Was on the road reporting something that also interests you? or Because people go one of two ways. They love reading the news or they love being out on the road. Some people are able to do both really well, but generally speaking, people prefer one over the other. Getting that taste at WS, albeit on a smaller scale to what you you do at 2GB now, what sort of pushed you in the way that in the direction that you wanted to go?
1: To be honest, I'm still straddling both. I still love both sides of it. and at WS I had this awesome gig where I read breakfast. Um, I think I was on mix at the time, and then went out on the road for the second half of the shift, and that was my dream scenario. And then when I was offered a position at 2GB, it was similar. It was reading afternoons for Chris Smith, but on the road beforehand or after, depending on where the shift started and finished. And um, I've been lucky to kind of continue that through. Uh, For a while there I was reading breakfast and mornings uh, for a couple of years, but now I'm back on reading mornings and then I'm on the road from 9 till 1 or 2 in the afternoon. Whenever it finishes, um, and I really like being able to do both, so I'm I'm still still torn between both of them. And
0: what's um, the appeal for on the road reporting? What do you love about that?
1: Oh, you're telling stories. You know, you're finding out what's going on, and you're calling it in. And the best thing about radio is it's happening right now, and it's immediate, and you can just call up on your phone and file. And yeah, I just love the adrenaline of it, and going out there and actually getting the story, the, the journalism aspect rather than collating news and putting it together and reading it. So, I, yeah, I still love both.
0: Using words to describe a, a situation is something that are the tools of the trade for any radio journalist and that is a real skill and a real art. Who would you say taught you how to present that in such a way when you're out at the scene as an on-road reporter?
1: Well, definitely Leanne had influence there because I was on the road with her in those early days. Um, Corinne McKay as well, because she was the one I was filing to. And I remember my very first crime scene was at uh, North Ride, at some kind of village where priests were living and someone had been stabbed and there was blood everywhere and there was a trail of blood and you could see these two hands on on the white wall. And I described it to her in the Vox, and she was getting drumming in, you know, have you checked your facts? And she's like, is it blood? I'm like, well... Yeah, it's blood. So have you checked? So I had to walk over to the cops yeah. and ask, uh, just want to confirm that's blood. They looked at me like I was an idiot. Of course it's blood. It's not ketchup. But you know, the point was Corinne was just drumming in, you know, you need to learn your facts. And I think, um, when I'd filed at her and she'd be like, well, hang on, you no, you could have been sitting here. What can you see? What can you smell? What are you hearing? And it was the, it was those questions from her, I think, that made me think of the senses when I'm reporting. So, run through that list and then try and work some of it into the report if you can.
0: So, how was it that you ended up at TGB? You said there that you had a number of years at, at WS and, you know, being in that building and working for Mix and, you know, doing all that kind of stuff, recording, uh, reporting into to the Queensland stations and all of that. Was it? Did it come at a stage where you? needed a change or were looking for a a greater challenge? How was it that you ended up at 2GB?
1: No, I was still enjoying that mix um, and, you know, getting to cover some big things because, you know, uh, World Youth Day and... um, Gosh. Like Would have been a couple now. of
0: elections there. Few
1: elections. There was a Queensland election, um, Kevin O7's election, um, where I got to go on the road a bit, which was great, up in Queensland and here. Um, there was some natural disasters. And um, and then uh, I just got a call from Aaron Ma at 2GB asking to catch up for coffee. And um, I was... Really didn't want to leave Glenn and Corinne and the, this amazing team that we had over at WS, but you know, the time was right and it was a, a great opportunity to jump over to AM, and so I did.
0: What was the conversation like with Glenn? I'm sure, I have no doubt, he would have been just so supportive.
1: He was, that was the thing. I think, you know, I would have been in tears beforehand, I, I would have been. Um, I remember telling Jim Dolan too and that, you know, Jim, Jim was so wonderful to work with and I remember being really nervous to tell him as well. But yeah, Glenn was so supportive and I remember him saying, you know, there's not even any point really arguing over pay rises or anything because this is what you want. And um, it, it was, it was just the right time to go and he's been supportive ever since.
0: So that on-road reporting, you mentioned there are a couple of stories that you went to. When you went to TGB, if I'm not mistaken, you went and covered Christchurch. Is that right? Yeah,
1: that's right. Um, it was probably four months after I'd started at TGB and it was just an accident really because um, the, re- the reporter who would have gone at the time didn't have a passport or it was out of date or something. Wow. And who it- was that? I um, can't remember exactly and it was it, it filed through and then it, um, Jess Campanaro was Deputy News Director at the time, so she was kind of the next in line and um, she was actually pregnant at the time, not that we all knew, but that was her decision to not go then and then it filed down to me and I was due to read the 11am news bulletin and Erin said, do you want to go to the airport? So someone took over at about 10 to 11 and I swung past home and packed a little backpack and um, some gumboots and went to the airport and didn't go anywhere for 24 hours because, of course, all the flights were cancelled, but um, eventually got to Wellington and then um, hitchhiked to the boat and got the boat across um, to the South Island and then hitchhiked with a guy, a man who um, whose grandmother lived in Christchurch, so he wanted to get down to check on her because yeah. the phones were all down. So I hitchhiked with him. We went via his house and met his wife and his kids who were very confused as to what was going on, and she gave me – bottles of water and muesli bars. And then we arrived at Christchurch at seven in the morning and it was go, go, go from there.
0: So you had a great story on the way to the story, <laughs> which, you know, journalists have painted in a really poor light at times, but there's so many great people that work in the industry that have that ability to tell stories and to Communicate what's going on, and the lengths that they go to to get those stories are often better than the stories themselves (laughs) sometimes.
1: Yeah, it was a bit of an ordeal, but at the time, you know, that's just what you're doing to get there. That's part of the fight, and you know, everyone else is trying to get there too. And TV stations were chartering planes, and you know, especially in radio, you're usually on your own, so it's a bit easier to move around and you can you know, chat to people on a boat and work out who's going somewhere. And yeah, it worked. It was um, tricky to find accommodation once I got there because it was a war zone. It really was, it, you know, there were tanks everywhere, military. It just had that feeling about it and it was still shaking. So it was, um a, yeah, a tough assignment. But, you know, the, the tough part was seeing these people who lost their homes. I stood with one family while their home was pulled down and, um, I've since, since caught up with them and they've, they've split their family up. The couple's divorced, they've left Christchurch, you know, they're those stories. And there was one lady at a supermarket who I was trying to interview, but then, you know, she once she went to say something, she just started bawling and we just stood there hugging in a supermarket for like half an hour, like weirdos. But it was just that she was just so upset. I went to a wedding while I was over there of a guy that rescued his fiance from the rubble in the city. TV, I think it was, in one of the, I can't even remember now which building it was, yeah. and quite a few of us journos went there to report on it and ended up hanging around with the crowd after. And, you know, it was, yeah, it was a really, um, it was a really emotional time, but it was um, a pretty incredible experience as a reporter as well, which feels weird to say, you know, like it, yeah. it was such a horrible, horrible natural disaster. And we saw bodies and we saw families that were searching for bodies and yet we're having to drive through in a bus, point our cameras at it and stick our microphones in there every day. It's um, Yeah, it's it's tricky to get your head around, but it's part of the job.
0: Something that Sarah Harris spoke about earlier on in this podcast series, like almost like reporter's guilt. You've got to do a job, but there's some heavy stuff going on uh, while you're there and you get called all kinds of different names. But essentially, like I said, you're just there to do a, do a job. Yeah. Um, can be really difficult at times It though. can
1: and it's not even like, it's not even just natural disasters, that's just caught, you know, sticking your microphone in someone's face as they run out of the Downing Centre, you know, that can be, you can cop just as much flack doing it there and, and yeah, you feel kind of scummy sometimes to be honest but as you said, it's the job and if the story needs to be told then there's a reason for you being there.
0: How do you balance your emotion in a situation like that which, like you said, you've seen so much devastation but... You've also got to put your straight face on and do live crosses and do reports for the news and all of those um, kind of things. How do you how do you how do you manage that?
1: Um, I think while well, most journalists are probably the same while you're in it, you, the emotions kind of put to the side. Like you can have empathy, um, but you're you're working, you're you're thinking of facts, you're trying to convey the story, and you know you're working to a deadline, so you're busy. I don't think it's till after that you often pause and realise. Or, or, you know, or, or maybe you don't, you just move on and, you know, as you've said before, us Janos like to, to drink. So maybe, maybe it's that's the coping mechanism rather than dealing with the emotion at the time. But I think you just put it aside, you do your job and then, you know, sometimes it comes back after and you you feel it a little bit. Um, but otherwise it's just business as usual, I guess.
0: Another thing that is business as usual, dealing with emotional uh, conflict or more so on, a, on an internal level when we sort of, reflect back on the merger between 2UE and mm. 2GB, or well, probably 18 months ago now. What was that time like working in that environment when speculation was swirling around as to what may or may not happen? Now, I lived through it mm. in 2003 when the similar sort of thing happened, but it didn't go through. What was it like when it actually came to pass.
1: Yeah, well that's the thing that I'll uh, talk about two UE and two G B merging has been around since before I was in radio. You know, it's been around forever. So I don't think I thought it was actually gonna happen, to be honest. Um, it was tough, you know, it was tough for everyone at two G B and two UE just not knowing. I think that was one of the hardest things. Once the decision was made and, you know, we'd we'd merged it it, felt, it was, you know, it was horrible. We lost really awesome people from 2UE and 2GB. We've had to merge. It's just a commercial reality, you know. It's, I mean, it happened to newspapers, it happened to TV rooms, and then suddenly it was happening to us. So, yeah, it was a horrible time. It really was.
0: Is it a shame, do you think, that that competitiveness doesn't exist anymore? Because while people kind of look at it that, oh, you know, they're racing for the stories and doing all that kind of thing, I kind of look back on it now and I just think, that is just so much of a us versus them mentality which has built up over so many years that when I look back now, I just think it's so much energy wasted needlessly on, on this when a lot of the times you're friends with the other reporter, you're still <laughs> trying to get on air first and you're trying to stick that microphone yeah. up there in front of the other guy that's working for the other joint. But I was just think Joe Public out there in listener land, he couldn't give a rat.
1: No, they're only listening to the one station. They're not flicking between the news to see who got, who got it up first or, or, uh, you know, who had the better angle. I don't, um, I think that's still there. Um, sure. We've, we've lost. The dual newsrooms in the commercial sphere in Sydney. Um, and so now, you know, we're 2GB, 2UE newsroom and I love that we still see Packy sticking up the 2UE mic. You know, you still yeah, see yeah, the 2UE yeah. mic up and I, st- you know, I do the 2UE outro in the news as well as the 2GB outro. It's great to have, you know, a still a really strong newsroom. Um, but we're still competing with the ABC, but we're still competing with now more. You know, you've got every man and their dog on Twitter. You've got online services streaming constantly. You know, you've, your TVs have, what, six news bulletins a day now. Sky News is streaming live. So you're still trying to get it up first. In the, it's, nowadays you don't wait to the top of the hour. You know, you've got to be on live because everyone else is doing that. So I, I don't think the competition's gone. Um, maybe it's just spread out a little bit. It's not that 2UE versus 2GB at a press conference anymore, but it's it's still, you know, the reporter for Macquarie Media battling with everyone else to get it out there first
0: when it, the merger did happen and it was all out of the the one joint did you find that things just settled into stride pretty much straight away how was it dealt with from an internal perspective
1: yeah we um so it was april last year that we merged and um we merged into the piermont building and you know for For those of us who survived the cut at 2GB we wanted to make a real effort to make sure that those coming from the other side of the bridge felt welcome and that we were a merged newsroom and I think um, I think the newsroom did it really well like I think we've from day one we've just been working really well together and I think everyone knows that we're all nice people and it doesn't matter which side you came from it wasn't our decision for it to happen um, and so yeah it's been working really smoothly I think and I've, yeah I've there were, there were all sorts of things said about how horrible it would be, but then it, it just works you know and, and we were on air I was on air reading to you eat breakfast on the following Monday, like it just happened overnight.
0: Take me through a day in the life of you. How does it work from the moment you get up? What time would you get up in the morning, and what do you do to prepare for a day? When you're reading on the Alan Jones Breakfast Show and then going out on the road, which you now do.
1: Well, I'm up at 3.40 if I don't need to
0: hit the snooze.
1: <laughs> don't need to rush. Um, in into the studio by about four thirty, and um, I'm reading wires, reading the papers getting my head around what's happening, um, putting together briefs um, for, for breakfast news and um, I'm on air at about 5.15 doing updates, um, like doing a cross with the, the pre-breakfast program and then I'm reading the news from 530 Um and then it's half-hourly bulletins through to nine o'clock and in between, like you said before, you're not lying around doing nothing, you're taking calls and putting in calls and um, rolling on programs interviews is one of the main things I do too. So when Alan's got the Prime Minister on, that's um, I'm rolling and turning that around for the next bulletin. Um, and then come nine o'clock, I'm out on the road, usually, sometimes. It de- depends day-to-day what the jobs list is looking like. Um, so today I was at a you know the Archibald announcement, which was great. Um, could be court, could be sport, whatever whatever the day brings. Or I'm in reading the national prefeed bulletins. So we do a, a national bulletin every hour. Um, so that requires a whole person in there. So some days I'll do that. Some days I'll be on the road. And then um, clock off sometime after 12.30.
0: Now talk to me about reading the news for Alan Jones. You mentioned you hadn't always sort of felt comfortable. Was that something that was... That you wanted to do, or is that something that somebody said to you? Nat would like you to read for Alan, being the Sydney radio breakfast institution that he yeah. is, it must have been just like wow. Well,
1: yeah, I remember um, just even reading for Chris Smith in the afternoons. You know, it was was huge just to read read the news on TGB when I'd been listening to it for a long time. Um, was a lot to get my head around, and then I was filling in for Joel Larby on breakfast while he was away. So I guess that's how I eased into it. Um, but yeah, there's that pressure there when it's you know the Alan Jones Breakfast Show. It's just knowing how many people are listening, and and um, you know you've got to get it right. And same when you're reading for Ray Hadley or anyone really on on the station, you just you've got that the pressure of knowing everyone's listening. And um, after the Sochi Olympics, I came back and went full time into the breakfast role. So it's been. Two and, a, two and a bit years in the in um, in breakfast. Any blow-ups? Oh, you know, I'm trying to think of a particularly bad. Everyone's
0: got good stories about yeah, blow-ups. Alan,
1: he did get caught saying, "I think who's this woman reading my news ones or something like that." But that's, that's not a blow-up.
0: <laughs> Standard.
1: <laughs> that's Alan. Um, no, you know what? It's one of those things where you you've just got to you've just got to put your head down and work. And get it right. You know, there's that old saying, don't effort it up. And that's, you know, what we all say to each other in the newsroom is a bit of a joke, but we mean it. Like, just put your head down, work, get it right, and then you'll be fine. You're
0: pretty fortunate to go to London for the Olympics yeah. there as well. Oh gosh, yeah. Talk to me about that experience. What was that like?
1: That was amazing because we were rights holders, so we had, you know, the whole commentary team over there, you know, Gordon Bray and Ray Hadley and all these amazing names that you've heard commentating different sports. Um, it, was a, it was a rush. It was flat out. Um, so Joel Larby and I had, um, we didn't have accreditation, so we were on the outside of um of all the venues doing the grassy knolls which are press conferences after the after the events um and covering everything else you know like there was a taxi driver a taxi driver that jumped off a bridge and you know all of those sort of other stories that are going on around it um court stories and athletes behaving badly uh so we were covering all of that
0: i believe they call that color (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Um and a lot of I mean the best thing about the Olympics is you don't you know, the you don't need accreditation. So, you know, you're not Channel Seven, but you can be standing covering the road race or the marathon or, you know, in the middle of town. So we got to do a lot of um a lot of sport coverage as well. So it was it was a buzz. It was amazing. We didn't sleep much. Um you know, met some incredible people, interviewed some amazing athletes, and yeah, kind of gave me that Olympic bug.
0: Over the summer, you were given the opportunity to work with Michael Packey to present your own show on a Sunday night. Yeah, Just who you two. Um, filling in for Miranda Devine, and it turns out that she never came back, so you're still there.
1: Yeah, who would have thought? Um, we were both really shocked to get the call up, and it was actually. Um, Paul bowed in management, who thought of putting us together, and then just called and said, "You guys want to give it a go, and you can 't say no, can you? It was an amazing opportunity, so we thought we 'd definitely give it a go, and it was meant to be five weeks, and we 'd planned out our five weeks, and you know we 're ready for a break after that, and then yeah it's just it 's um, rolled on, which is great. Um, Miranda took some time off to be an HSC mum this year. She's got a kid in year 12 and you know she's so full on with her TV and print commitments so we're still here.
0: Is that something that you've wanted to do or had an idea that perhaps you may have wanted to move into that presenting area because you know and it's very old school way of thinking that having women on radio particularly talk back isn't uh, or hasn't been embraced as perhaps as well as it should have. You get that opportunity there to use your skills that you've learnt for X number of years as a journalist and a a newsreader, which you know a lot of the issues and the the topics. It's just presenting it in a different way. How have you found that experience?
1: It's actually been surprisingly different to my work in in the newsroom. So I found it, uh, you know, very difficult to put my opinion out there. And that's probably the biggest challenge um, is... Putting aside that impartiality that we've trained ourselves to use, you know, to recognize your bias and counter it. Um, putting that aside and going, this is what I think. Love me or hate me. This is, this is what I think about all these issues that I've, you know, hid my opinion for all those years on. Um, and I've, you know, I've been getting some great advice from John Brennan and he's the one that says put your opinion out there. And, you know, that's why Ray and Alan are all so successful. And that has been really hard to do that. And I'm still learning, like, still struggling to even give one opinion during a show. I find that um, unnatural. So, got so much to learn. Um, it's not something that I thought I would ever do, it's not something I'd been chasing. Um, but the opportunity fell in front of us, and yeah, we're still going.
0: And looking at that interviewing in a long form format as opposed to talking to somebody and yeah. getting the money grab for the news. the you Getting know, the
1: 10-second grab. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, to have those questions or to follow up and, and really listen to what the person's saying as opposed to narrowing in on the, the focus or the story of the day to sort of get those people to um, expand upon the, the stories, whatever it may be. Have you found that part of it challenging also?
1: Yes, because there's so much going on, you know, behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not even panelling. We've got a panel op, you know, we're in, it's a, it's a luxury, but yeah, it's hard to just slow down and listen when you're worried about what's next, which, you know, whether you've got callers, is the next interview up? All of that stuff's happening. Um, it's also just, there's so much research involved when you are doing those longer format interviews. Whereas when you're in the newsroom, quite often someone calls in and like, Gosh, what's this about? Okay, yep. What's your what's your thought on the on the matter? You know that that magic first question where you really don't know what they're talking <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh yeah, yep, yeah, that's on the front page of the telly. Whoops! But um, it's yeah, it's so different to that, of course. Um, so it's it, you know, it's just hours of prep, and producers are so important. You know, that's they're they're your backup. So yeah, it's very different.
0: And what's it like working with Michael Packey, who is, and I've said this a few times on this podcast without doubt, the hardest working man I have met in media.
1: He hasn't taken a Sunday off since we started in of November. Of course he hasn't. Um, I've had two off <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's I, I'm worried for him. He needs a holiday. But, no, he's, he's, he's amazing. You know, he's got such an incredible political brain and he can chat about it, you know, he can make it interesting. And it's been great. We, um, we had only ever worked opposing each other on election campaigns before this, yeah. you know, and then we're, of course, in the same newsroom now, and um, yeah, I think we're forging a, a really good friendship as well as eventually, you know, hopefully becoming a, a good on-air team, and I give him a hard time about being a bit of a political dork, and he gives me a hard time about sport and whatever else, and yeah,
0: it's good. It's not uncommon in radio to have these Arranged marriages, but it seems to work for you guys.
1: Yeah, we get on really well, you know, and and we're we're really interested in what we're doing. You know, we're both really into news and really into what's going on in the world. So we'll have chats about things. You know, we, we I talk to him more than I talk to my parents. Like, you know, we'll spend an hour on a, on the phone, you know, talking about what we're going to talk about on the show, and um, you know, and planning. And we we've, we're quite similar in our thinking, which means we don't have a lot to fight about on air we're, mm. you know we've got to start looking for things to really have a debate on, but we're quite similar in our thinking. Yeah. So yeah. It's um it's been great getting to know Packy better. Although I have to stop calling him Packy. I've been told it has to be Michael on air. Michael, yeah. Never called him Michael in my life. No so one's I, called him Michael. Yeah. So I write it I have to write it like out, Michael, on the top of quite yeah. a few sheets so yeah, that I yeah. remember to call him Michael.
0: Oh dear. Yeah. Um you're also involved in a number of charitable Causes and you love doing that side of things. What's yeah. what's that? Does give you a good balance in in life?
1: Yeah, it keeps me busy as well. But it's um, you know, it's it's just purely out of interest, I think. Um, and you know, I'd love to be doing more. Um, and that's just a timing thing. Um with soldier on it's just a little bit of helping out their communications team every now and then like with just like more as a professional volunteer um that's a cause that's really close to my heart because i've had quite a few um ancestors and, and relatives now that have served um in military here and overseas and um including one actually i was in glifley last year for work and found the grave of, of one of them which was incredible wow. um But also another one suffered terrible, um, melancholy, uh, which is now considered post-traumatic stress disorder and was on and off a boat in Gallipoli and ended up dying in Egypt and, you know, was just traumatized and reading through his, um, military inquest and to what he was, what life was like for him day to day suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. It just makes you really. Oh, well, it makes me sad, but it also makes you realise what we have to be doing for the guys that are serving now, so that's where my interest in that comes from. Um, um, I do a bit with suicide prevention groups, youth suicide prevention, and um, and trying to do a bit more for the Stroke Foundation, because my father had a stroke six years ago, which just changed everything for our family, and he was really lucky to survive, but it's... You know, a lot of the time it's preventable, so it's just getting the message out there. And um, I don't, I don't do much with the Stroke Foundation. It's just more the same thing, spreading the word, and you know, wearing my blue string around my my wrist and <laughs> telling everyone about it when I can. And yeah,
0: we'll wrap things up in a sec. But before we go, I just want some advice from you for anyone that's looking to break into radio or media these days. It's become a whole lot harder than what it used to be due to the sort of fragmentation. And on the flip side, things like what we're doing now, podcasts have made things more, I guess, readily available for people to experiment and try to get their skills to a certain level. So what would your advice be to anyone looking to get a start in radio or or media?
1: Firstly, get those skills up, you know, start a podcast, volunteer, do internships. You know, we, we actually don't get that many people contact us at 2GB wanting internships. Really? Yeah. I run the program. Um, and we really just don't get that many quite often, you know, none from a university in a whole year. So, you know, ask, um, it's put in the call, find out who to speak to first, do it properly and, and ask for work experience. It's a great opportunity. Um, if you want to get into radio, look after your vocal cords. And you know, the cigarettes, booze, karaoke, all of those sorts of things do a lot of damage. And I really struggled. Um, I think it was, I think I was still at WS, and when I moved over to 2GB, I was having big trouble losing my voice. Um, and that was just from not looking after it. You know, not that I was out boozing every night, but you know, it takes a lot of strain on the yeah. on, your, on your vocal cords. So I think that, on a practical front, that would be my other ad- advice. Um, and yeah, I guess. Someone else said keep a little black book of every person you ever meet in the industry because eventually you'll work with them and you'll want to work with them and, you know, you need to get in touch. So I guess, yeah, just keeping keeping track of your contacts is another great one because, as we know, you end up working with people more than once and, yeah, don't burn any bridges, I guess.
0: Natalie Peters, thanks very much for your time. Thanks,
1: Ralphie. (laughs)
0: There she is, Natalie Peters from 2GB. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Natalie, please let her know by sending her a tweet. She's at NatalieJPeters. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, leave a rating or review, and that way more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been... The Media Maids Podcast. Media Mates Podcast.